Welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. This is Black on the Air. Hope you're doing well. What a week, man. What a week. A really special show uh, today. Um, former Secretary of State Madeline Albright is on the pod. I had a, a discussion with her last night in front of an audience in, here in Culver City, California, at the Frost Auditorium. And uh, it was really a lot of fun. So I hope you enjoy that. We covered her book, uh, Fascism, A Warning, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, but it's now back out in paperback. And she has a new introduction. And it's just great. Talking to her is amazing. The amount of knowledge she has in her head about the world is is fascinating. It's 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 so listenable. I was like a a rap student, like one of her students, just listening the whole time. She was great. So I hope you enjoy that. It's coming up. I almost didn't do a weigh in today because I knew I had the live performance. But man, guys, so much stuff. <laughs> it keeps going. It keeps going. Up. I do have to mention the State of the Union first. I really have not much to say about it. The only thing I have to say about it is uh. God, I love Nancy Pelosi so much. The Pelosi clap that came out of that was one of the most fantastic things because it really sums up everything, every um, reaction that you actually need to Trump and that speech. And it's funny because Van Jones and CNN, you know, I try to watch all the channels when I'm watching it. I had to go, so I was watching a little bit of CNN. But actually, I'm one of the people, maybe it's from having to write comedy on it so much. I try to see what everybody's looking at, but I didn't have a chance this time. But Van Jones (laughs) said something that I actually thought right before he said it. I couldn't believe it. Trump said some bullshit where it looked like uh, he did a—well, I can't even remember what it was, but I said, man— that is some shit followed by some chocolate, boy. I can't believe he just, or some chocolate followed by some shit. I can't believe he said that. And then in my mind, I start thinking of a Reese's commercial with chocolate and shit instead of chocolate and peanut. But trust me, guys, it's not that funny. But that was going through my head when Van Jones said that speech was nothing but cookies and poop or something like that. I can't remember. I was like, Van, that's exactly what I was thinking. It was so full of shit. But I think the president is that anyway. So to me, it really doesn't, almost doesn't matter what he says at this point. But the Pelosi clap was so fantastic, guys. You know what I'm talking about if you saw it, where she's just doing, she's looking at him with her arms outstretched. And that clap, each beat of that clap was like, fuck you, you ignorant motherfucker. Just fuck you. With the laughing coming through. Oh, God, I love you, Nancy Pelosi. That was so nice. And I'm so happy that she's having this moment right now because Nancy Pelosi has been hated on for so long, you guys. And I didn't like the fact that liberals never really came to her defense. They just kind of lay there. She was like, like Republicans always thought everybody agreed with her being a butt of a joke or something. Like, well, do we really want Nancy Pelosi to to run the Congress? Yes, we want her in there. Yes. And, you know, a lot of the progressive wing of the party was kind of attacking her recently. But now she, I think she's getting her, her, her proppers, as we say, which I'm very happy about. So, as I said, a lot of stuff going on. It is uh, Black History Month, as we know. We're seven days in. And I just want to thank uh, white people for releasing their album Blackface just in time for Black History Month. Because apparently there's—this <laughs> there's this is amazing. You've, you guys have followed this uh, thing in Virginia with all these people suddenly who wore <laughs> the evidence of them wearing blackface. First, there's the governor. There's that uh, picture in his yearbook uh, that first he said he was in, then he said he was in wasn't of the Klansman and the minstrelly blackface guy. And uh, he's trying to explain it. He says it wasn't him, but he did dress up as Michael Jackson and put like a little shoe polish on his cheeks. 
which for him was kind of half blackface. It was half black, maybe mulatto face. He wasn't sure. You know, trying to <laughs> light skin face. I'm not sure. And then the attorney general, and uh, who asked for his ouster first, then admitted he wore blackface. He dressed in. He was 17 or something. And I'm piecing all this together in my mind. I'm I'm not reading this. So I'm trying to remember it all directly. But apparently, he and his friends liked the rapper Curtis Blow, as he said. And uh, he said he used brown makeup on his face. So I guess maybe technically he's in brown face. I don't know. Everybody's losing their minds over this. Um, Governor's got to go. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I have different opinions about this. Uh, Oh, and then we have all this other, all these other images of uh, various white people and various types of black or blackened or darkened face. And it's almost like this. now there's this debate about is this even, you know, why is this bad or blah, 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 or whatever. I have a couple of thoughts about this. Let me go to the first one. Okay. I am kind of surprised at how outraged people are about this, especially when you see a picture from 30 years ago, 35 years ago, And people are shocked, you know, I'm shocked. I can't believe that someone would think this is proper. I can't believe that people would do this. Let me just give you a a little bit of insight into the relationship of white people and black people in America. In the things on the list of what white people care about in this country, insulting black people has never cracked the top hundred. Maybe recently. White people have never given a fuck about insulting black people. I mean, the whole blackface itself is ridiculing black people. You honestly think that 35 years ago, the white people really gave a fuck about insulting black people. This is the revelation that people don't realize, you know, being able to easily dress in blackface and everything had no guilt attached to it. There was no remorse attached to it at the time. There's no self-reflection about should I do this or not. It was a joke that everybody, that they all reveled in and thought was funny and everybody moved on. But if there was ever a thought that you might be insulting a group of people and that, and that you shouldn't do that, guys, that, was, that has never been a thing until recently. I think maybe when Obama became president, White people really became hyper-concerned about insulting black people. That's why a lot of even comedians, and this is the right and the left, were afraid about doing Obama jokes because they didn't want to insult, they suddenly didn't want to insult black people. Um, But I don't remember this ever being a thing, you know. So there's kind of a a time machine outrage now where people want to get in a time machine and act like the way we feel now is the way people have always felt. And I'm not excusing this behavior at all. I'm just marveling at the at the surprise and the outrage of it. Um, So just a little info for you. It doesn't surprise me at all that that kind of stuff happened. Um, But I think there is a distinction. Now, here's a distinction that a lot of people are not going to agree with me in this, and that's okay. But, you know, I do these things because I know people aren't going to agree with me. And these are the people who agree with me a lot, so that's fine. But I think there is a distinction between what I would say is blackface, the traditional blackface that has its roots in the minstrel show, intentionally meant to degrade, deride, and ridicule black people, and dark makeup. I think those are two different things. And by the way, I'm not the only one that feels that. We have felt that way in our society. We're just deciding now to not feel that way. And there are many examples of how we've excused it. Some are older, some are more recent. 
you know, where people thought it's not that big a deal. They weren't outraged by it. But now there seems to be a culture that's outraged by all of that. Okay, so that's where I kind of draw the line, right? So a motherfucker dressing up, you know, in that mammy kind of blackface standing next to a Klansman, that's some fucked up shit. That, I agree. That motherfucker needs to go. You're in medical school. That age, you shouldn't be doing that. But if a guy said he dressed as Curtis Blow and, you know, they darken the face a little bit, that's not really blackface. And I, I know you guys are going to disagree with me, but that's not the same thing. And I'll give you an example. Um, Billy Crystal was a regular performer on Saturday Night Live in the 80s. He used to do Sammy Davis Jr. on the show all the time, and he darkened his face to do Sammy Davis Jr. This is on Saturday Night Live, guys. You can go to YouTube right now and look this up. Nobody gave a fuck, and nobody thought that that Billy Crystal was doing a minstrel show and was trying to demean blacks. Nobody thought that. And if you look at it now and you're offended by it, this is what I mean by time machine outrage. I don't hold any weight to that. It's I don't know why you're offended by that now. What? Why does that offend you? It doesn't make sense to me. It's, I think it's misplaced outrage. Now, if Billy Crystal was on that show, and he wore what I would call blackface, a minstrel show, and he said, no, mammy, come from Alabama, you know, doing that. I would say that's fucked up. And yes, you know, you should be mad about that. Give you a more current example. Robert Downey Jr., um, what was the movie? I can't. Kai, do you remember the movie with Robert Downey Jr.? Yeah, you know where he played the military guy and. and he, oh, Tropic Thunder. Yes, Tropic Thunder, yes. right? Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. Tropic Thunder is in dark makeup. You guys, he's playing a black person. I believe he got nominated for an Academy Award for that. He got nominated for an Oscar. This is in the last fifteen or twenty years, right? Nobody gave a fuck about that. Everybody laughed and thought it was funny, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah, maybe some people here and there. But nobody's been asking for Robert Downey Jr. to leave, right? Now, I have some problems with some of these things for different reasons. Uh, Oh, another example is Fred Armisen on Saturday Night Live. (laughs) Saturday Night Live has its own issues, by the way. He was chosen to play Obama, and they had to darken him a bit. I think now they're saying they bronzed him. Uh, go fuck yourself, whatever. But darkened him a bit to play Saturn to play Obama, you know, until I think Jay Fer- Farrell started playing him. Now, I'm not mad at him being a little darker to play Obama. I'm more mad at, and this goes back to the Billy Crystal thing, too. By the way, I was, I was not mad at Billy Crystal's impression of Sam Davis Jr. I always had a problem with Saturday Night Live finding the black comics who can do that impression. You know, because they already have reasons not to have black people in their show. And now there's an opportunity for black people to play parts. And you don't got any black people on your show. You know, how about finding the black people that can do this stuff? You already have told us that um, that the world of satire and comedy need only be interpreted mostly by white people. So we already got that message. That's why I live in color came around, by the way, to kind of prove that wrong. But, you know, my more problem with Saturday Night Live and with... The world in general, the acting world, is you should be hiring black people to play those parts. That's a, a more important point about the darkening in those arenas. Othello was one of the, the biggest examples of that, you know, where white people always played Othello and darken the face for it rather than finding a black person that could play that role. Finally, there's a role for a black person playing a Shakespeare production. No, let's get a white person, darken them up a bit. So that's my opinion on that. And I think it's kind of being lost in here. And I disagree with the people who treat that as the same thing. I thought the whole Megyn Kelly thing was so out of proportion to what she was saying. She actually used the wrong language, I thought, 
when she was talking about Halloween costumes. Because what they were discussing was, I think it was some girl, some young girl who wanted to dress as Diana Ross, and she darkened her skin to dress as Diana Ross. See, I, I don't get outraged about that kind of stuff the way that other people do. You know, I mean, Joy Behar on The View showed a picture of herself. She said she was playing an African princess or something where she darkened her skin. I'm going to see if people are going to really, I think Whoopi wasn't on that episode, by the way, which is kind of funny. But it'll be interesting to see if people get really upset at Joy Behar for that. This was like in 1980, once again, back then, you know. And it more proves my point that white people don't give a fuck about insulting black people more than, you know, there was this insidious racist element that is directly tied to the minstrel show in that portrayal. I think those are two different things. So anyhow, that's my take on that. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in Virginia uh, <laughs> with the black face of Palooza. Now, the other issue there is the lieutenant governor, uh, Fairfax, is being accused of sexual assault of a woman, uh, Dr. Vanessa Tyson. I think she's a fellow at Stanford. And that's, that is all in the middle of all this, and it's kind of being lost in it, uh, which I think is a shame because it's kind of being dismissed. And, you know, I mean, you know, I went after Cosby <laughs> my second nightly show, and I don't like when these issues get kind of swept under the rug, you know. And, and uh, one of the things that I wanted to, to uh, point out in this, it's, it's, it's a side issue in this, so I'm not going to talk about this in detail, but one of the issues, here's one of the ways that, and the right mainly does this right now against the left, is adding on words to change the meaning of something. And then they attack the new meaning that they've ascribed to it. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, when, actually before Me Too kind of started, I think starting with, with the Cosby situation, uh, the phrase believe women came around, right? And we all know why that phrase sprung up because for years women just weren't believed for a variety of reasons, you know. I mean, it wasn't very long ago that women, married women couldn't even get a credit card by themselves. Their husband had to get it for them, you know. In many of these rape cases over the years, we know most of the biggest reasons why women didn't report rape and why rape has been underreported is because people don't believe them. Being believed has been a major factor in it, hence the phrase believe women, right? Let's believe women. How about that for, for a change of, of attitude? So in the attack on this, why anyone would attack this is beyond me too, by the way. I just don't understand it. But, you know, um, people, people are crazy for whatever reason. So the right decides to attach the word all to that. Like, oh, so the left thinks you should believe all women. No, motherfucker. We said believe women. You're putting in the word all, Okay. And by putting in the word all, they try to weaken the case by attacking the word that they inserted. Oh, so you should just believe all women. So so whatever any woman says, that's just the truth. Motherfucker, can you stop saying that? We said believe women because you weren't doing that. You know, you're the one that added the word believe all women. Another example is Black Lives Matter. You know, Black Lives Matter, same thing. Black lives did not matter enough for it to come to the attention of people for various reasons. You know, black people witness, you know, the phenomenon of black lives not mattering enough. You know, black lives matter was a slogan that expressed that. But on the right, they added the word only black lives matter, you know. And that's what they inferred from Black Lives Matter. Oh, so only Black Lives Matter. No, motherfucker, you added that word. Our phrase was perfect. Why are you adding words? 
But that's what they attack. They don't attack Black Lives Matter. They attack only Black Lives Matter. Well, don't these lives matter? Well, I think all lives matter. You know, and it's so infuriating. And I just want to say in these cases, don't fight the new word fight. Fight the phrase that is, you know, that is intended to be there. And in this case, I put out a tweet that I stand with Dr. Tyson on this. And what I mean by that is that I want her to be heard. I want what she has to say to be heard. You know, let's let's open our ears to believing someone when they have a case like this. There are many reasons why people don't speak up, especially in these cases, you know, and we owe it to ourselves to listen, you know, and how about believing <laughs> once in a while, too? How about that? But. In saying that, we're not saying believe all women. That's your bullshit. You put that in there. Don't put that on us. All right. That's all I got. Now I'm starting to get too preachy. I got conversation with Madam Secretary coming up. Hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, that's it. Academy Award-winning screenwriter and playwright Aaron Sorkin was recently on Bill's Pod discussing his long career in great movies and shows, including The West Wing, one of my favorites, The Newsroom, and The Social Network. But he has a new play on Broadway, an adaptation of Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize-winning To Kill a Mockingbird, which was recently voted America's best-loved novel of all time. Now, To Kill a Mockingbird has become one of the most popular and toughest tickets to get on Broadway. It set the record as the highest-grossing American play in Broadway history. Amazing. It has also been selected as a critic's picked by the New York Times and has been called one of the greatest plays in history by NPR. Wow. So two-time Emmy Award winner Jeff Daniels, the newsroom godless, stars live on stages Atticus Finch. Some of the reviews from Variety, one of the greatest stage successes this or any Broadway season, it is not played to a single empty seat, said Brett Lang. From Rolling Stone, unforgettable and unmissable. All rise for the miracle that is Mockingbird, said Peter Travers. From the New York Post, if you want one thing to do for your parents, your grandparents, and your children, buy them tickets to To Kill a Mockingbird. Better yet, take them yourself. This is what great theater is for. It's Michael Rydell. And while To Kill a Mockingbird is set out for the next several months, tickets would make a fantastic Valentine's Day gift when purchased for available performances this coming summer or fall. So, you know, put them in the flowers, put them in, you know, whatever you're giving your boo, as uh, <laughs> Cory Booker says, <laughs> for Valentine's Day. So remember, tickets are available directly through Telecharge.com or the show's website, To Kill a Mockingbird, Broadway.com. To Kill a Mockingbird, it's a hit on Broadway, you guys. Go see it. And now back uh, to my talk with Secretary of State, Madeline Albright. Welcome to uh, LA Live Talks. My name is Larry Wilmore. I'm honored uh, to be here tonight. Also for my podcast, as you heard, Larry Wilmore. Black on the Air, aptly titled. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, I just want to do that one more time because I am honored to be able to speak tonight to the former Secretary of State, but she'll always be the Secretary of State in our hearts. <laughs> Ms. Madeline Albright, thank you so much for joining. Um, Delighted. Me tonight, being on the podcast. Um, oh. It was so great talking to you backstage. She comes up to me and says, Larry, there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> There's nothing going on in the news. Nothing right? at all. Yeah. Whatever are we going to discuss? Yeah. Um, so this is so now you're out with the paperback copy of your book. Correct. Fascism. Yes. The uh, yeah. initial hardcover came out. Was it 2016? Last year. Last year. Yeah, last year, right yeah. after the election. Mm-hmm. 
It's interesting. What would spur you to write a book about fascism? No. Uh, well, you know, the truth is, I was planning to write this book no matter what, because yeah. um, I was observing things that made me nervous about what was going on in American society and others in terms of divisions, um, kind of a sense of where was our country going, mm-hmm. uh, what was happening in, in terms of how people felt about the economy or about the globalization issue. So I was going to write it no matter what. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed to have come out at a good time. <laughs> so your warning was intended for a different president. Well, for, yeah. yeah, yes. Wow, um, that's fascinating. And I, I, I love, I know everyone's saying, no, why couldn't it have been? Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting book because it's both academic, it's historical, it's personal, you know, and I wanted to start with that. Um, and fascism is such, an, for me, it's such a 20th century idea. You know, it's almost like a new word like popcorn that kind of arrived mm-hmm. on the scene in the 20th century. And you have a, a personal accounting of it. But I want to start with your personal story. Your family's from Czechoslovakia, right? Right, yes. <laughs> wow. Checks in the yeah, house, yeah. man. Can you imagine, yeah. The old stand-up joke is, oh, can I get a ride home? That's the <laughs> joke, yeah. You got your people here. So, so tell me about um, that time with yes. the family. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. It's, it yeah. was a 20th century issue, and I'll go into this later, but yeah. uh, I decided that I needed to do some history of fascism, mm-hmm. um, which I'll talk about in a minute. But my own story is I was born in Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. in 1937, two years before World War II. My father was a Czechoslovak diplomat. And um, one of the themes in my life has always been is when the U.S. is totally absent, terrible things happen. And one of the problems in September 1938 was the Munich Agreement, Mm -hmm. uh, which was an agreement made by the British and French with the Germans and Italians, and the U.S. was not present. And it was done over the heads of the Czechoslovaks. And as a result, the country I was born in was sold down the river. And um, It was kind of the the first... The first appeasement. First appeasement. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and by the way, Neville Chamberlain, who was the British Prime Minister, said something that resonates even today. Why should we care about people in faraway places with unpronounceable names? Mm. Um, and so, uh, have, uh, so what happened is uh, the Nazis marched in mm. on March 1939. My parents managed to escape. Uh, and we lived in England all through the war. My father was with the government in exile. When we came back um, in 1945, my father was... To Czechoslovakia. To Czechoslovakia. Uh, He um, worked there for a while as chief of staff to the foreign minister, and then they made him ambassador to Yugoslavia. Uh, And, you know, the little girl in the national costume that gives flowers at the airport, that's what I did for a living. uh, Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Um, I can picture that. No. Um, that was your first diplomatic that mission. That was my first yes, diplomatic yes, mission. Very good. <clears throat> um, and so then, because he was a professional diplomat, his mm-hmm. time was up in three years, and he got a new assignment, which was to um, be the Czechoslovak representative on a new commission to do with India and Pakistan over Kashmir. And he was very excited to do that. And then there was the communist coup in February 48, yeah. and he didn't want to work for the communists. And his best friends uh, were the British and American ambassadors in Belgrade, and they said, you countries just had a coup. If you resign, they'll name some communist and nothing's going to happen, so why don't you work with us, which is what he did. And he finished what he was doing. He came to the United States in 1948. He defected and asked for political asylum. Mm -hmm. But the story is, and I didn't know this all until later, is that... um, 
26 members of my family died in the Holocaust. Mm. Um, and all as a result of appeasement and fascism and the whole theory of finding a scapegoat of somebody to blame, which is what Hitler right. did. So we actually had to escape um, authoritarian governments twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very much a part of my story. Uh, and um, so I, I wanted to look into what creates yeah. it. And by the way, you said something um, that fascism is just kind of, it is 20th century, mm-hmm. but it's a term people throw around without any idea what it means. Yeah, they kind of just uh, yeah. label... Anybody uh, you disagree with is <laughs> yes, a fascist. You're a fascist right. um, and yes. Or the teenage boy who's not allowed to drive thinks his father's yeah. a fascist. Yeah. And so... Um, well, uh, he's know, not completely wrong. That, but, uh, <laughs> but the thing that I thought it was important to kind of analyze what it yes. was and where it came from. So Mussolini was the first fascist. Yeah, and the word kind of has um, etymological roots in Italy, right? In yes, Italian, absolutely. Right? I mm-hmm. mean, there are these rods that are yeah. called fascis. And, but mm-hmm. what happened was, uh, and this is a very important part, because there is a sense of uh, loss that, mm-hmm. uh, that is then exacerbated by... Um, a uh, demagogic leader. And mm-hmm. so in Italy's case, they had fought on the side of the Allies during World War I, mm-hmm. and yet they weren't fully recognized and recompensed for it. And so there was a lot of anger in Italy. Yeah. And There's always some injury that is being addressed. Absolutely. That, that's the kind of the first way in for a fascist. Very right? much so. They're addressing that injury. Right? Uh, and, because it, it starts very emotional, right? Well, and this is why yeah. I kind of... Uh, to go back to what you asked me at the beginning, why I was even looking at it, because mm-hmm. there was kind of a sense, I thought, in the U.S. of something having gone wrong, and mm-hmm. why were we in other people's wars and what was happening. So um, what uh, Mussolini was a very smart man. He actually started out being a lefty um, mm-hmm. and then um, found a different way of describing what the problems were. Mm-hmm. He created groups uh, he uh, was a very good speaker. He knew how to do propaganda. And the part that is very interesting, that both he and Hitler came to power constitutionally. Yes. Um, so this was not any kind of a coup or anything sure. like that. I do call the communists fascists also. But I realize that. Yeah, you make a, an interesting distinction. You don't consider a problem with the right or the left or the center, which right. I found interesting, too, that you can be a fascist in the center. You can't, I mean, yeah. the, the whole thing. And my attempt to define fascism, mm. and by the way, it's not an ideology. It's right. a process for gaining power mm. uh, and keeping it. And mm-hmm. so one of the first things that a fascist does is decide that the press is the enemy of the people. Um, there also is a sense of not having any respect for institutions, um, and thinking that you're above the law, and then... You're really freaking this audience right, out. Um, <laughs> this section's yeah. getting very concerned over here. The, the main, pre- the, the ultimate thing is using violence uh, to mm-hmm. uh, get power and keep power. Now, I've noticed that many of the, I'll call them early fascists, for want of a better description, Mussolini, Hitler, they, they seem to also get groups of people who are willing to commit violence also, you know, like um, whether it's the brown shirts, you know, in Germany or, or some of these factions yeah. that Muslim, and you used a term called secular evangelists in your book, which I thought was an interesting yeah. term. Is this like a hypnotic effect they have? Because how do you just turn people into that? Or do you think they already have that tendency and they just need to be directed? Or well, something? I think the, the issue is there are divisions. Uh-huh. And 
a really uh, a, a democratic leader or somebody who wants to solve problems is able to try or looks for some way to bring people together. Mm -hmm. What a fascist leader does is exacerbate those divisions mm -hmm. by identifying with one group um, that feels that they have been, that group that it has been ignored or angered or whatever, at the expense of another. So that it really is a division that then is made much worse by the leader saying it's all their fault. And that is where the whole concept of the scapegoat comes from. Right. You know, it's the people that look different or different religion or whatever. They, it's their fault. And that is one of the basic aspects is already looking at where the problems are mm -hmm. and then exacerbating them and being very, very good at propaganda. Mm -hmm. Now, the best quote in the book is by Mussolini who said, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. There is a lot of feather plucking going on. By the way, you can't sew those two words too quickly together. Um, and, uh, yeah. On my podcast, you can. <laughs> but I think that that's mm -hmm. one. I mean, some people think my book is alarming. It's supposed to be alarming. Right. And I identify with the chicken, by the way. <laughs> you know, I feel every well, I often do. Yes, yes. Um, but then the other thing, and I, can, I just have to bring this quote along. Mussolini once said to a reporter, often I would like to be wrong, but so far it has never happened. Unbelievable. He, there's a quote you have, something you said to his mistress. <laughs> no. He spoke to everybody. No, I mean, the truth is, the more I learned about him, and yeah. I learned, one of the things I like when I write books is to actually learn something, yeah. and I, I found him a totally fascinating character that yeah. was able to mobilize people, and the part that was so interesting, he got power constitutionally, mm -hmm. because King Emmanuel asked him to take charge. Right. Now, he ended badly because he was hung and various... In the streets. And, and mm -hmm. the streets. But what is also interesting is Hitler uh, was somebody that also exacerbated the differences, said, in fact, that he had a plan for what Germany could be and go back to a great nationalist life. Mm -hmm. But what had happened, and it's what you said uh, also, is it came as a result of World War I, yeah. where they didn't like, the Germans didn't like the Versailles Treaty. Right. They felt they hadn't been treated properly. Uh, there were reparations. Then there was a financial crisis, and the Weimar Republic didn't work. Right. And so then the head of the government, Van Hindenburg, called on Hitler to take over. So again, it was constitutional. And then, as I write about what's going on in a variety of countries now, whether it's Turkey or Hungary or Poland, mm -hmm. um, the Philippines, Venezuela, um, all those people were elected. And I think that's the part that we kind yeah. of have to think about, is the only places where there were revolutions was the Soviet Union and China and North Korea. And so I, I think that that's something to really note. There's anger. The leader exacerbates it, says, uh, I'm on your side, and those people are the ones that should be blamed because they're different, they're mm -hmm. immigrants, um, and one has to do something it's about it. It's interesting because, you know, right after Mussolini and Hitler, or right before, I should say, with the Russian Revolution, it seems like maybe the distinction is you had a group of people who recognized an injury as opposed to a person. Well, but then the person was able to well, work Lenin off of it. Lenin, and right. then Stalin took it to a whole other level. Well, yes, yeah, definitely. Right. 
Um, what, what was the, um, would you say the distinction between Mussolini and Hitler was, Mussolini was more about dismantling what was going on inside of Italy, whereas Hitler was concerned globally, it seemed like. Like his injury was with the world. Is that, is that it, it evolved well, it into was, that. Well, it was a combination yeah. because... I mean, he had been a failure. I mean, he was born in Austria. Um, He had tried to be an artist, a number of different aspects, and then he. But he operated on the basis that he was Germany, um, and that Germany had been disregarded. And so he began to talk about the greatness of Germany and Lebensraum, room for uh, more Germans and an ethnic purity, and then blaming the Jews for everything that had gone on. And so. Uh, but he did see it from a larger perspective. You know, it's interesting to me, you know, having <laughs> grown up African-American and civil rights and, you know, hearing from my parents and all that, I feel like a lot of people, and I don't know what this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, don't have a sense of the virility, or the virility isn't quite the right word, but how horrible anti-Semitism was in Europe during that time leading up to that, and how I felt like how easy it must have been to use that against people, even people who maybe unsuspectingly, you know, glommed onto it or just let it go. Is that fair? I think it is. I mean, yeah. and part of it is, I mean, this didn't just begin um, during the 20th century. Exactly. This is something that had I mean. been gone yeah. for a long time. But I do think there is a tendency when uh, there are problems is to blame somebody else. Yes. And Marginalization usually, happens over time. Exactly. Usually. The, and, and if you've got, it's, I mean, I think we always try to place the blame not on ourselves, but on somebody else. And if the person um, is different, either in religion or looks or language or whatever, then it's an easy target for that. But, but anti-Semitism had definitely been there much earlier. Um, and, um, and I think that if you're blaming, it, it, you know, it's hard to get at what made it so evil uh, what, why Hitler decided on this, but it went in a way that there is no comparison to it. And I think there's some horrible people, but I never compare anybody to Hitler because what he did was really beyond any sense of the right. millions of people that died. And that is, by the way, I didn't know about my own background. I was uh, raised a Catholic, married an Episcopalian, and found out I was Jewish, so I have my own... Uh, Wait, after that? Uh-huh. After you were married, and yes, wow, yeah, I mean, what a nice little wedding gift. Well, uh, but no, I mean, long. <laughs> I was by then. I was also divorced, but but oh. I, uh, but, <laughs> but I do think. And by the way, well, the thing that uh, I have to tell about this because it's an, a lot of people don't know about their backgrounds sure. in so many ways. Anyway, so when I uh, was, um, uh, I had just become ambassador to the UN, and my name was in the paper a lot. And I, started, I love that you can just drop little things like that. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's so awesome. Uh, yeah, I think I was ambassador yeah, to the yeah. UN. No, I was secretary of state during yeah. that time. So uh, what happened was I started getting letters from people mm-hmm. uh, kind of saying, some written in Czech and some very bad handwriting. Um, and they would say, and they'd have, the facts weren't right in terms of the villages or the dates. Somebody wrote and said, I went to high school with your father in 1915, which would have been impossible since he was born in 1909. But they always ended with, I need a visa or I'd like some sure, money. Sure, um, so, um, you know, I kind of yeah. let that be. So then uh, what happened, there was the period where it was clear that Secretary Christopher wasn't going to stay for another term. Warren Christopher. So it was the mm-hmm. period of the great mentioning mm-hmm. as to who was going to succeed. And I was, my name was out there. 
So and all of a sudden I get a letter from somebody uh, that has all the villages and names and dates and everything right, saying, I knew, my family knew your family to be a fine Jewish family. Mm. So I'm just being vetted uh, by the White House counsel, and I get asked, you know, normal questions about taxes and nannies and all that. And so then at the end of it... Oh, the good old days. They, they say... <laughs> <laughs> when that was all, right? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they asked... Uh, we, the, he said, we ask everybody this question, mm-hmm. is there something you'd like to tell us that we didn't ask you? And I said, well, mm-hmm. I just got this letter that it's possible that I'm of Jewish background. And they said, so what? The president is not anti-Semitic. Um, right. so, I mean, he's worn blackface, but other but than the, that. Yeah. Not, not that <laughs> No, one. I had to put that joke. <laughs> uh, so the thing that happened was... Um, you're not supposed to talk to the press between, between the time that you're named and the okay. time you're confirmed. But there was a journalist, Michael Dobbs, from the Washington Post, who wanted to write a profile of me. Mm-hmm. And so my office gave him names of people and various things. And two days after I was confirmed, by the way, 99 to nothing. Uh, yeah. You know, the only person that was absent was Jay Rockefeller, a Democrat, so I never let him forget that. Um, But anyway, I'm sitting there, and uh, Michael Dobbs and another reporter come, and they all of a sudden start handing me these index cards with the various names of my family. The Nazis were very bureaucratic, and they kept cards about everybody, and that's when I learned that... um, so many members of my family had mm. been sent to concentration camps. Um, I could not go and try to figure out um, what had happened, so I asked my brother and sister to go, um, and ultimately I did find out all the facts. Um, but it, that is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, uh, because I do think one needs to find out how that hatred, what you were saying, yeah. how it began. And how it uh, gains power and gains control. Uh, you make a lot of distinctions in your book. I like the way you ask questions to your students and you include them in the book. I think yeah. it's a very clarifying way to explain things. You, know? uh, you get them to answer the question yes. and then you clear it up for us yourself. You know? um, I found one of the distinctions interesting uh, between tyrant and, and uh, was it dictator? Tyrant and fascist yeah. is what you say. That a fascist is certainly a tyrant, but a tyrant isn't necessarily right. a fascist, I think is the distinction you make. Well, can you explain that and maybe give an well, example? Well, I think it's really the violent aspect of it. So okay. the only person that I think is a fascist that I wrote about in the book is Kim Jong-un, the North Korean. Okay. Because um, that place is operated by violence. He has executed uh, people. Uh, other people are in um, labor camps. Mm-hmm. This was true of his whole family. I mean, it's a family of fascists. And you're talking about currently? Well, currently, um, and uh, there was the one that started the place, and then Kim Jong-il, the man I met, and then Kim Jong-un now. But it is a really uh, a place controlled by violence and fear. Okay. I think some of the others that I write about, there are a variety of tendencies to it Mm -hmm. leading in in the direction uh, of, and the violence is, is the dispositive, a bully with an army. And right. so I think that that, but it's very hard to define. And that's mm-hmm. why I think one do, does have to look for what feathers are being plucked yeah. um, and what the steps are. And the steps do have a lot to do with the things that I said earlier. First of all, the identification of one group mm-hmm. and the blame of the other. Democracy is majority rule and minority rights. 
Uh, so the Hungarian, Viktor Orban, has been talking about illiberal democracy mm -hmm. in which all he cares about is majority rule. Um, and so one has to kind of analyze what is going on in the various places. Absolutely. There's also an aspect of personality that plays a part. Um, when I think of Mussolini, you know, I think of him preening, you know, that kind of mask he yeah. had on Hitler with all his histrionics. You know, I, I, don't, I, can't, I don't know offhand if Stalin was known for anything. Do you know if he had histrionics or had that force of personality? It's certainly force of personality. Yeah. And then yeah, the big bushy uh, cruel, 70s really mustache. cruel to people. Like Lenin, I don't think, um, was known. Who, I thought I've done a lot of reading mm -hmm. about him, a very intelligent and smart man, not necessarily cruel. But Stalin, I think, was known for his cruelty. And right. then he's the one that started the pogroms and really uh, and, and all getting rid of the peasants and sending people to Siberia and right. the labor camps. By the way, one of the things, uh, the Russians love to tell train stories. And one of the ways to remember how they were proceeding from each other. So there's the story about all the leaders of the Soviet Union are on a train. And they run out of so track. Weird. Um, and so they get off the train, and Lenin says, you know, we have such wonderful workers. They are the ones that are going to go out and lay new track. And Stalin says, that is crazy. They're just a bunch of lazy creeps. Um, we're going to send some of them to labor camps, and so the others will see what is going on. And Khrushchev comes in. And he says, no, no, we can't do that to our workers. You know, we need to entertain them. And so he kind of started with uh, circuses and all kinds of things going on. Mm -hmm. And then uh, <clears throat> Brezhnev comes in. He says, oh, my God, that is so much work. We can't do that. Let's get back on the train and go back and forth and pretend we're moving. Uh, uh, <laughs> And then Gorbachev comes in and says, no, what we need to do is just keep yelling about how badly this train has been run. So it's a great way to kind of... Wow. Very nice. Interesting analogy. Um, what are the absolute telltale signs um, that a, a fascist takeover is imminent? Well, I think that's the problem, is it? It's, mm -hmm. it's not... It's, a feather, but I do think that the major thing is all of a sudden when it does turn to violence of some kind. Violence is a really violence important Violence is the, the key part, mm -hmm. I think, and uh, punishing people by violent ways. Now, now let me ask you this. Is, does that violence always have to be uh, controlled and directed by those in power, or can it be hinted at, you know, or... Well, I think there is a hint in terms of uh, I have, you know, a leader that makes clear that he has control over things. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and the truth is that we're not very good at, at looking for the signs. Mm -hmm. Because, for instance, take Hungary, which I find an interesting place. Mm -hmm. um, I went there in 1986, because I've been involved with the National Democratic Institute, and um, met Viktor Orban. And what he was interesting, because he was everybody's favorite dissident, um, very smart, had started a youth party. By the way, he was uh, educated at the expense of George Soros, um, who he's now accusing of mm -hmm. just being a Jew who's made everything more complicated. Um, but all of a sudden, he begins to acquire... Uh, things haven't gone very well in Hungary. 
Mm-hmm. He has this party, and he all of a sudden becomes the opposite of what he was, um, and is discrediting everybody and says, I'm the one that has to be in power. It begins by being more right-wing, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden doing the following thing again, disgruntled. The Hungarians were disgruntled. They had not done very well in World War I either. It had been the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and it was dismembered. And the Treaty of Trainon did not give them all their land back. So in 91, I was doing surveys all over Europe to see how the reaction was to the fall of the Soviet Union. And I don't remember all the statistics, but one that I'll never forget is the Hungarians. You asked, was there a piece of your country in the neighboring country? The Hung- 80% Hungarians thought that was true. So what Orban has done is played off that sense of loss by Hungarians. Right saying that, you know, there are Hungarians in Slovakia and in Romania and in Croatia, and he says we have to have them back. Then mm-hmm. he's into ethnic purity by not uh, allowing any uh, migrants coming in now in the most recent flows, the refugees, and he is building up the greater um, Hungary, allied himself with the Russians, and is now trying to figure out how he doesn't respect the judiciary at all, Um, and is blaming others. I mean, it's a very interesting story in terms of the evolution, Mm -hmm. but it's very hard at the exact moment because it really, and that's what I'm really warning about. It's not as if there's some one event, but all of a sudden this kind of feather plucking that has led up to it. And when you don't pay attention to it, that's what happens. It seems like, uh, you mentioned Erdogan in your book, uh, it seems to me that Turkey is experiencing that right now. Is that fair? Very much so. And this is also what's interesting. I have been fascinated by Turkey a long time. Yeah, I've been fascinated for at least the last 10 years. Well, it's just, you've been there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous, Istanbul is a fantastic city. It's beautiful, yeah. By the way, I took uh, my, two of my grandchildren there and my granddaughter, um, she was like 10, and she said, I figured out Turkey. We spent the night in Europe and we had lunch in Asia. That pretty much answers a lot about yeah, Turkey. Absolutely. Because yeah. its location is something that is very key. But what is interesting, it was a country run a lot by the military and by the elite uh-huh. that live in Istanbul on the other side of the river in big houses. And uh, Erdogan comes along and he begins to be concerned about what's going on in the rural areas and the hinterland. He wins. His party does a lot of constituency services, but all of a sudden he develops some other agenda. So he, he's connected to the people. He, he what, he, that's, right. And the people had not been getting what they needed, right. and they felt disgruntled that the rich people were. There's and that, so that that's, that's right. that thing. And mm-hmm. so then he picks it up and does, in fact, uh, develop highly autocratic approach to things, mm. some of it based uh, on religion, but some of it basically on nationalism that has been hurt mm-hmm. um, and has now spread that. And he is... He's pretty close to being a, a, a basic autocrat. Yeah. And uh, it seems like he tricks Trump all the time. <laughs> That's what it seems like to me. He thinks he's his buddy, and then all of a sudden he's not. You know. Well, flattery is a big part yes. of this. Yes. It's actually, that's not even just Flattery actually yeah. is a very big yeah. part of, right. of, the, of the mentality. Of all of it. Him. If you look yes. at all these people, you're the only one that can, um, you know, you're stable genius and all that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why this Mussolini quote, I think, is so good. Yes. Often I would like to be wrong, but so far it has never happened. 
I think Charles Barkley has a book like yeah, that. Right. I, think. I wonder if he's a fascist. He's a basketball fascist. Yeah. Uh, where do you put Putin? Well, Putin, um, he's a fascist. He's a KGB agent. Yes. Um, and I, I think a lot of people have read about him and has coming from a family that had been um, really not respected enough. He mm-hmm. was poor. He joins the KGB. Um, and he's kind of worked his way up in a lot of different things by being um, a good bureaucrat, working hard, etc. Mm-hmm. I first met him with President Clinton. We were at, um, at an APEC meeting in New Zealand. He was, uh, Putin had just begun to rise in power. Mm-hmm. He was trying very hard to ingratiate himself um, with everybody. Mm-hmm. He then becomes the head of the country, uh, we go there for a summit, and he, Putin is very smart. Um, in meetings, uh, he doesn't have talking points, but he takes notes on everything, mm. um, and he is, he is smart. Mm. Well, now, again, back to the survey that I did in 91, we did focus groups everywhere, and one was outside of Moscow. This man stands up, and he says, I'm so embarrassed. We used to be a superpower, and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. Wow. And what happened was Putin bought into that kind of loss of greatness um, and was able to rise to power. He's making Russia great again. And what he has done, I think, is play a weak hand brilliantly. He has reintroduced... Russia did used to have influence in the Middle East. He has come back into that. Uh, he has just held, or Moscow has just held a conference on what should happen in Afghanistan. Uh, he invaded, he destabilized or tried to Georgia. He then also, the Crimean aspect. And now what he is doing is undermining, um, having weaponized information um, in Central and Eastern Europe, separating us from our allies. So he has played a weak hand well. Their economy is not good. He has, in fact, used the nationalism, that man, you know, in order to say Russia has to come back. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I categorize him. I think that he is just a flat-out KGB autocrat. Mm -hmm. Do you see him rising on the world stage or receding? Well, he is, um, I think he's rising. I mean, mm-hmm. he has inserted himself into many different things. The other part that's happening is in the history kind of of communism, there have been times where the Russians and the, Chi- or the Soviet Union and the Chinese have been friends. Then mm-hmm. there was the Sino-Soviet split and they uh, came apart, which is the time that the United States um, and Henry Kissinger and the recognition and, and Nixon 70s. did, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, all of a sudden, the Russians and Chinese are operating together again more mm-hmm. um, and in a number of different things, oil and a variety of aspects. So um, he is, uh, at the moment, he seems to be moving forward in a number of different ways by exerting his influence, or with Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, the Turks are a NATO country, and they are buying Russian equipment. So yeah. um, he is... He's, yeah, Putin at- seems to me to be the fascist mentor, or something, <laughs> like he's mentoring other fascists and authoritarians, it seems to me. Well, he's, he's in a lot of places, and as yeah. I said, he's Syria. smart. Yeah. He is smart. He has also been um, support, not supportive of what other countries are now advocating for Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a different relationship with Maduro than other people. So, right. Um, and what about China? Because China is such, you know, 
not just a big player on the world stage, but I think this is their century in a lot of different ways, but we'll see how that goes. But when I look at their leader, I don't get that same, some of the same stuff we're talking about in the same ways. You know, do you view uh, what's happening in China as in the same category or different? Well, the Chinese are, um, in, in some ways, there's similarities in terms mm -hmm. of, and this goes back again to countries that feel they've been ignored or insulted or lost their greatness. Sure. China was the Middle Kingdom and was very obviously central and well-regarded in a number mm -hmm. of ways. Then, during the 19th century, a lot of imperialists, the Opium War, a variety of things that made them uh, not great in any way. Then there's the Communist Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and they have uh, what has been interesting and most recently Xi Jinping has done this, is call on nationalism to keep people motivated. Um, and one, what he's doing is uh, spreading China's influence. Mm -hmm. You know, they have this thing, one belt, one road. I've yeah. been saying they must be getting pretty fat because the belt keeps getting larger <laughs> and larger. Yeah. Um, and they are, some of it is they're energy hungry and resource hungry, so they are going into countries and making deals and um, offering them uh, grants rather than mm -hmm. um, loans and, and really penetrating their societies. And they are, I think, trying to spread their uh, power in the South China Sea and a number of different aspects. I think it's more complicated there than meets the eye. I, I agree. Um, and that there are divisions uh, between the urban-rural yeah. Um, and the rich and poor there. It's a huge country, obviously. And they have a youth population that is a bit westernized right. now also. Yeah. And many that have gone to schools. Yeah. So it's not a simple thing. Right. But um, he is a fairly authoritarian leader. He's fired yeah. a lot of people sure. um, and replaced them with his own people. By the way, it's just 40 years that President Carter normalized relations um, with the Chinese. Uh, because Kissinger hadn't, and Nixon hadn't gone the full way in right. terms of... So um, it's very... Uh, the combination... China is the rising power. There's just no question. And the fact that the, the Russians and the Chinese are dealing with each other more now um, is nervous-making, and North Korea is there um, also as a part of the story. Are you concerned about North Korea? Very much so. Mm -hmm. um, so, by the way... I am. I was, until recently, the highest level sitting official to have gone to North Korea. Mm -hmm. I went in the fall of 2000. I, I have to say this. We didn't know an awful lot about Kim Jong-il, the father of the right. current leader. Um, but uh, I, I do have to take full responsibility for Dennis Rodman. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was hoping you were going to go there. Yeah, because the thing that happened was mm -hmm. that uh, one thing we did know was that Kim Jong-il loved basketball. Uh -huh. So I took an autograph uh, by Michael Jordan basketball to right. him, which he had in his Holy of Holies. So that is a new diplomatic tool. And Dennis Rodman. Uh, but I am nervous about it. I think that um, uh, President Trump initially was threatening everything in terms of who had the larger nuclear button. And sure. so um, the thing that then happens is there is a summit in Singapore. I've often been asked now whether it was a win-win or a Kim-win. It was a Kim-win uh, because what he got out of it 
was the fact that the, that Trump canceled the exercises that were supposed to take place. So ridiculous. And got nothing, yeah. you know, vague terms in terms of uh, denuclearization without any definitions or any kind of verification procedures. So um, Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. And there's that hasn't happened. There's uh, Yesterday at the State of the Union, President Trump announced that there's going to be another meeting um, in later February in Vietnam. I hope it's better prepared than the one that they just had mm-hmm. um, and that we actually, that something comes out of it. And North Korea is a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. And so um, I, I think that, and they lie. And so the common, and they flatter. Um, and so I think it does make me nervous as to where it's going. And I hope that this next summit is prepared. Yeah. Um, I was very concerned when Trump had the meeting with Putin and there were, no one was allowed in there and no notes and that sort of thing. Um, were you concerned about that? Very what? much so. I, I'm not sure that... Is, is that unprecedented? It is unpre- in the following yeah. way. First of all, let me just say, um, I teach a course in Georgetown and I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to what you want. That's all it is. Yeah. So what are the tools? And my course is called the National Security Toolbox, and there are not a lot of tools. We are the most powerful country in the world, but mm-hmm. there are not a lot of tools. So there's diplomacy, bilateral and multilateral. Then there are the economic tools of trade and aid and sanctions, the threat of the use of force, the use of force, intelligence and law enforcement. That's it. And statecraft is trying to figure out which tool you use when. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> what is important Ultimately, the bread and butter tool is diplomacy. Right. Uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, I think, used all of those. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you need diplomats to do diplomacy. Meanwhile, the State Department has been cut and hiring freezes and various aspects of that. Right. Uh, And so the question is, and part of it is, and a meeting of heads of state is an action-forcing mechanism. It Mm -hmm. makes the bureaucracy try to figure out what can come out of it, how to get ready. It takes an incredible amount of work. There's no evidence of a lot of that, especially um, in terms of the the meetings with Putin. Um, And then there are supposed to be note-takers in it. And not just because um, they think it's kind of fun to be in there, but the bottom line is because if there are agreements made, they have to be written down and then taken back to your country so that the policy can be carried out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a useful way of making, um, there's a strategy and then you carry it out that way. And the fact that nobody is really, that there aren't these people, and you can't, by the way, I also think that interpreters the, are misunderstood in many ways. Um, it, they are an essential part of translating what is being said. Sure. They don't have... Um, you know, they're not stenographers. They take notes, which are sometimes their own kind of method of keeping track of things. Mm-hmm. And they have been in some of the meetings, um, but there's some discussion about trying to get their notes, but they aren't really the kinds of notes that you need to figure right. out what happened. So we don't know what's happened. And I find that deeply, deeply troubling. One of the most interesting portrayals of, of an interpreter was uh, in the movie Failsafe when Henry Fonda was president and his interpreter was telling him like the mood of the of the uh, of the of Russian president yeah. and he could tell like what he was thinking not just the words but yeah. the language he was using his mood yeah it's a really interesting thing um, I want to talk about Trump and 
there is a tendency, you know, for us to be flip about Trump, which has its purpose. You know, there's levity in it, but there's a very there's a seriousness about this too, which I'm very concerned about. You know, one of the things um, is NATO um, and his relationship to NATO and his relationship to that really concerns me. Um, you famously laid out your three Ds, I think, um, your, your rules of NATO. Yep. Do you remember what those were? So, don't uh, disown or no, something? No, I mean, we, we really, NATO is the most important alliance um, in the history of the world. Yeah. And basically, NATO was created to keep the United States in, Germany down, and the Russians out. Then things changed as Germany in fact, became one of our great allies. Mm. Um, and the, the issue was how NATO operated, and it's added a lot of countries now. Um, and it is the most powerful alliance, but it is not against Russia. Um, and so, uh, and it isn't just a military alliance, it's also uh, a political alliance in terms of democracies and a, a way of trying to get, uh, and it's, we're about to celebrate its 70th anniversary. Mm -hmm. But I've said about people and institutions at age 70 need a little bit of refurbishing. So one has to think about how it operates, what it does. And what has happened is Trump has um, made it seem as if it's um, kind of something that's not that important. Yeah, he acts like a, a slumlord. Well, and the part that he's, but he's totally misunderstood, <laughs> mm -hmm. when countries become members of NATO, they are supposed to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. It isn't as if they put it into a pot. Right. Um, and it, that's, it's as Trump doesn't understand that. It's yeah. kind of transactional. Like the, you ante up or right. something, right. Uh, and, mm -hmm. But what we, we see it as an important alliance. Mm -hmm. And what has happened is that uh, one of the things that I have said, I think that Trump is a gift to Putin. Because what Putin is trying to do is separate us from all our allies and what I had said earlier. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of things that Trump is saying and doing is making that happen. The other part that I, I do, obviously, a lot of traveling abroad, and what has happened is that the statements that have been made have um, frightened our allies mm -hmm. uh, and confused our adversaries. <clears throat> and I was just in <clears throat> a conference in Morocco, which was actually on immigration, and it was being run by the Canadians, and I was asked to come and speak. The U.S. chair was empty. The Russians and Chinese were there. We are AWOL. And uh, going back to when I said the U.S. is absent, terrible things happen, mm -hmm. that's what's happening. And that is what makes me nervous as a political scientist and mm -hmm. somebody that was in the government, is that uh, what worries me, we can deal with a new two more years of this, but not four more after that. Because the vacuum is going to be taken up by somebody else. There will be uh, new organizations that we are not a part of, and the U.S. is stronger when we have allies and friends. And so that is what worries me um, in terms of what's happening. And do you think the threat with Trump, um, do you think Trump is a fascist? Uh, I would say the answer is no, no to that. No, I have not called him a fascist. Yeah. I do think He's the least democratic president in modern American history. Do you think it's um, an ineptness about it, or do you think he's actually trying to do something? Like, and when I mean do something, 
I know, it's not, like, I don't want to be flip about this. Like, I personally, me, I don't think he's smart enough to be a fascist, basically, you know. I don't think he has enough, I mean, all the executive time. A fascist can't take that much executive time, you know. There's there's a lot of fascist things a fascist has to do, you know, in order to be a fascist, you know. I mean, he's got the the histrionics and all of that, kind of the Mussolini pose down and that kind of thing. But I think he's just lazy, you know, intellectually lazy. I think... You know, he's lazy about policy. He doesn't take the time to think things through or consider allies in a very meaningful, robust way. I mean, it's, it's such a dereliction of duty. I'm just at a loss to know why well, people think it's, you know, something to want more of. Well, I think that it, what is interesting about this is that he Thank has you. plugged in <laughs> to what I was <laughs> saying earlier, that there was dissatisfaction going on. Mm-hmm. I think he's a demagogue of major proportions. I think he... Then also, he has been influenced by people. Mm-hmm. And that's, Steve that's Bannon, fact, yeah. in terms of that destruction is a strategy. Mm. Um, and he is, seems to believe that various aspects of our institutional structure need to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think he has played into that whole story. Um, and I think, I actually don't think. I don't think he's stupid. I think he is uh, somebody that is very manipulative mm-hmm. and can be manipulated by the flattery aspect of it. What bothers me is that there is no visible decision-making process. To go back to, I worked for President Carter and President Clinton. I study and I teach about the decision-making process. By the way, one of the hard parts about teaching these days I don't want to brainwash my students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say to them, you know, some of you took my course because of who I am, but I'm not trying to brainwash you, so argue with me. That's great. Um, Good for you. But I think that what has to happen, we're not a new country. We know how to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And that process, the president is the ultimate decision maker. And the whole government, um, there's thousands of decisions made every day in, in Washington. But the harder the decision, it gets pushed up uh, the tree here in order for the president ultimately to make the decisions. And a really good national security advisor is somebody, you go into a meeting, it's known as the principal's meeting, and the cabinet members are there. And a good national security advisor will make the different secretary of state, defense, et cetera, state their views. I always say kind of break the eggs in order so that when the meeting's finished, you've made an omelet to give to the president. Mm-hmm. If you can't make the omelet, you give the egg mess to the president, and then you go into the Oval Office and argue in front of the president um, and, and have different views. I don't see any of that happening. And the weirdest thing that just happened is when the intelligence people, people uh. that he had named, yes. um, come and they do a threat analysis, it's on television. Mm -hmm. They are saying it, they're testifying. And then he disagrees with them. And then he actually said um, that the press misunderstood it. I mean, how stupid does he think we are? We saw it on television. Are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? I mean, it's really a denial aspect. So I think he's a combination of things. I do think that he is has a talent for rallying people. I mean, what he did do during the campaign, Mm -hmm. I watched it in terms of working off of people and generating their anger. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think that he's undemocratic. He doesn't understand the issues. 
I think um, that he has a limited vocabulary. He, uh, um, and, I, and I think that the State of the Union message yesterday was a very... By the way, one of the parts, I have to say this, is I'm not sure people fully appreciate how the State of the Union is put together. Mm -hmm. We used to call it the State of the Onion. So, the State of the Onion? onion well, what yeah. happens is every department... Uh, provide something that they think should go into the State of the Union uh -huh. message, and they send it to the White House. And then when you're a cabinet member, at least when we were around, you'd go to the State of the Union message and hope that whatever phrase you came up with actually <laughs> ends up in the State right. of the Union message. But the White House really is the one that formulates um, the State of the Union message. Uh, but it is a combination of various parts of the government. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Um, how was it created? I mean, that's one of the things. I think that an awful lot went in from the White House, and then there were changes that were made uh, that sometimes presidents say uh, kind of spontaneously. Right. And I think we basically saw a number of different speeches. I do have to give you <laughs> That's the what following. Pelosi was going through yeah. the pages, right? <laughs> uh, but just to tell you a little bit of the, the uh, theatrics of this. Okay, great. Because... Um, I, I was, uh, when I became Secretary of State, yeah. I came. The part that is really hard is that uh, all the jumping up and down. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> one of the things, if you're Secretary of State, you theoretically are supposed to lead the people and decide when it is you're going to stand up or really? whatever. Really? I didn't know that. was one of the things, but often the people stand up behind you, and so you have to figure out, they stood up, so you stand up. So right. I have to tell you what happened to me. In the middle of this, is just much more complicated, and all I could think of through all this is, and I, I came back from the whole thing, and I said to my children that I thought about, why is it that we stood through one of my daughter's weddings? Mm -hmm. And they said because you stood the whole time. You're the mother of the bride. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> so <laughs> various cabinet members obviously think about other things right. while this is going on. But the, and, and, and then you do watch the speaker. So Yes. Uh, I, I always love when Trump gives the speeches. And I know he's reading it for the first time because he'll agree with himself as he's reading yeah. it. You know? yeah. <laughs> he'll do, you know. Oh. Say, and that is, in Mexico, I'll pay for it. So true. They no, really no exactly. Absolutely. So no, you're, true. You're you know? <laughs> and that, so we need to do with abortion. I agree. I actually yeah. agree with that. Wow, that's a good line. You know? He's such a dick. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. I, I apologize. That's all right. I just can't help I've heard myself. that. This yeah. is horrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, last question on this, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. Um, where do you put terrorism? Because most of what we talked about are nation states, you know, where there is power to be um, administered over people that are in a region or, you know, that sort of thing. Terrorism kind of has some of the tenets, I think, of fascism the way that you're describing it, but it's in kind of a different form. You have your charismatic leaders, you know, you're, you're, they're aggrieved over something, they're carrying out violence, you know. Well, where do you put that? Well, I, I think part of the thing, I really am going to sound like a professor here. But, That's all right. But basically, a lot of international relations in the past has been carried out by nation states. Mm -hmm. um, and not all of them good, but they're really, uh, and it's the job of the leader, whether king or um, president, to take care of the people, the territory, and the way of life. And the reason that my toolbox works is that um, 
that leader is trying to protect something. And so you exert a variety of pressures right. um, in some ways, either diplomatically or through sanctions, or you do carrots by providing aid, and there's, ultimately... There's something to lose, right, something to gain. And you use right. force. And it used mm -hmm. to be that, that fighting, uh, the whole role of fighting has changed, and it mm -hmm. began in the uh, 20th century when they became total wars, and the civilian populations also were punished before. Sure. You know, if you read War and Peace, people would go and watch people fight on horseback. Right. So things That's why have I took changed. Tolstoy so many pages. Well, exactly, right. right. <laughs> so what has happened that is different now is the rise of the non-state actor. Mm -hmm. um, and they are terrorists, and they clearly don't have that sense that they have to protect their territory. Mm. Um, and don't particularly care about the people. And so they are much harder to deal with. And one of the issues is, what are the tools? How do you mm -hmm. deal with terrorism if they don't have something to protect? Right. So now that the discussion is whether the caliphate is gone, uh, I, it, it doesn't seem that it is. But what is interesting is they have spread all over. The franchise has now gone into Boko Haram and various places in Africa or um, in Asia, and so it's much harder to deal with them. Now, the other part, though, that, were, that is a, a fascist uh, characteristic mm -hmm. is to operate on the basis of fear. And that is one of the things that troubles me about what's going on everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And in this country, when uh, Trump talks about the fear of terrorists coming in with children from uh, Central America or something. So the terrorist threat is right. much harder to get your head around. Um, and they do do, um, they, you know, in every way, they, it's a, terrorism is a tool, mm -hmm. and they, they'll do anything to get what they want. And so it is very dangerous and very hard to deal with. And in fact, is kind of amoeba, an amoeba that spreads around. And then the more attention you pay. By the way, I didn't like when President Bush talked about a war on terror mm -hmm. after 9/11. The people that murdered were murderers; they weren't warriors. And so, by calling it a war on terror, it gives them a mythical strength. Elevated it. Elevates it all. So mm -hmm. it is. It, but it's very hard to work on. And there are different methods. And now. Added to all of that is cyber terrorism and mm. a whole different way of operating. I do think that I don't want to, uh, I, uh, I'm often asked if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I'm an optimist who worries a lot. And so um, <laughs> I am concerned about that there are various threats that we haven't quite figured out how to deal with. Mm -hmm. We have a leadership that doesn't make sense in terms of what it is doing. Right. Um, our, I happen to believe in the Constitution, and I think it's Article One time. Congress needs to be looking over this mm -hmm. and doing some investigating. Um, and really the oversight aspect, because they we need to figure out is a very hard era. And no matter what, to go back to the original thing you were, we were talking about, we things are different than what most of us grew up with in the 20th yeah. century. And what we need to do is to figure out answers that are common answers and not the kind that divide us even more and operating basically on the fear factor. Great. Well said. Yeah. All right. Okay, we have uh, some questions that we're going to take them. These, these are already written up. Yes, we do. Or Many of you sent people, some. People some, already submitted them. Submitted right? them. Um, we have time for a few questions. 
Uh, Madam Secretary, what are your thoughts on how information, be it true or false, and the ability to sped, spread it incredibly fast via social media and the likes, so, how is that impacting peace and diplomacy and negotiations in the world? It's kind of hard to understand everything. So uh, how to determine whether information is true or false? How uh, the ability to spread true or false information is okay. impacting uh, negotiation and diplomacy around the world. I think uh, it has had a huge effect, mm -hmm. and partially because we don't really know what the source of it right. is and where it's coming from and how much. I always hate to even think about it because it makes me, I do believe there is such a thing as truth, mm -hmm. but it is harder to come at as a result of that. And by the way, uh, one of the things just... Uh, you know, we all know the saying, see something, say something. Sure. I've added to that, do something. Um, and among the things that I think um, we have to do is to try to um, listen to people that we disagree with. I don't like the word tolerance because that's tolerate, put up with. I think we need to respect where, where people are going, thinking, and try to figure out. Mm -hmm. But it's hard. And so you need to listen to what you disagree with. So you should all be very glad that you don't live in Washington because I listen to right-wing radio as I drive. Uh, and I, a lot of hand motions and things. Yeah. And, um, but yes, I did something I that is even more painful than listening to Rush Limbaugh. And that is coming out on the airplane, I was listening to Sean Hannity mm. um, for four hours. And, Are you flying spirit or you know, something? Or? No, I mean, it was, <laughs> but it was um, Why on, do on this Fox, to you know, and I really do think, and then I also actually turned on other cable channels, and mm -hmm. I think it is very hard these days in terms of competition for the looniest stories and things. Sure. And the social media is a problem. And I do think that there are real questions now, obviously, um, that they are uh, being asked, forced to answer. And I think that we need to think about the influence of it because it is hard to figure out what is going on. Yeah, and the collusion of the Orwellian strategy that's going on now, especially from, and it's not all of Fox News, you know, I make fun of Fox News, I have in the past. My favorite phrase is, I disrespectfully disagree when I watch it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? but, um, but this whole, and it started, I remember with, uh, um, what's her name, um, who works with the White House, not Sarah Huckabee, Colonel Sanders, it was uh, Kellyanne Conway, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but just this, this willingness to, take this Orwellian strategy of, of truth just being this ephemeral yeah, wisp. Yeah, alternative you know, truth. Yes, exactly. No. You know. But so. I, I do think that, it, by the way, uh, this is a line that I, that's totally plagiarized from Silicon Valley, uh -huh. which is that people are talking to their governments on 21st century technology. The governments listen to them on 20th century technology and provide 19th century responses. And I think it really does show where is the information coming from. Um, and for instance, when I was studying the um, Arab Spring, mm -hmm. people were motivated to go to Tahrir Square by social media, right. everybody in their own um, echo chamber, and there was no idea about what to do. Yeah. And then elections were held too soon, the Muslim Brotherhood was organized, and the people in the square, didn't know what they were doing. Wow. Then I kind of made up this older guy that lives uh, outside of Cairo and wanted to come in and open his stall in the market. 
And he says, screw it. Uh, I, I want some order. And all of a sudden, you have a military government. And so there is that kind of step-by-step uh, yeah. thing. Uh, what is the future of the United Nations and the U.S.'s role in the United Nations? Uh, the United Nations and the U.S. role in the United Nations? Correct. Okay. Well, first of all, um, I think we have to remember that the United Nations is an American creation um, and has served a very important part of how um, the international system works, or mm. should. Um, and I have been, uh, I have to admit, uh, prejudiced about the importance of the UN. If it weren't for the UN, we wouldn't have come, been able to come to the United States. Mm -hmm. I did win, the um, when I was a sophomore in high school, the United Nations contest for the whole Rocky Mountain Empire. Den, you know, Colorado, Wyoming, etc. And the reason another thing she's just dropping that, on us. Uh, but and I think the reason I was able to do that that I was able to name the 51 countries of the UN in alphabetical order. Um, now there are 193, uh, and I do think that there are serious problems with, for instance, the Security Council. I often talk mm -hmm. about it as a kind of Rubik's cube. Um, when we were when the Clinton administration was in office, we thought Germany and Japan should, should become permanent members mm -hmm. of the Security Council. The first country to come to me to complain was Italy, saying we lost the war too, which is kind of a weird campaign slogan. Like, shut up, Italy! Quiet <laughs> yeah, yeah, down. Yeah. No one's yeah. talking to you right now. So then, <laughs> out of fifteen countries, there are usually five Europeans. And I would go to a European and say, I need your help on X vote. Uh -huh. um, and the ambassador would say, I'm so sorry, I can't help you. The EU does not yet have a common position. And then I'd go back to the same person two days later and say, now can you help me? And the ambassador would say, no, the EU does have a common position. So if it hadn't been for Brexit, um, one would think that maybe the EU should have had the permanent seat. That mm -hmm. would have irritated the Brits and the French. But... It's, it doesn't work in that number of ways. And so um, I do think it needs fixing. There's a very good um, mm -hmm. secretary general now, and he's got a reform plan. But Americans feel strangely about the U.N. There are yeah. people who think that the U.N. has um, uh, Black Hawk helicopters that come down and swoop up your lawn furniture at night. Mm -hmm. and, and then there are people who don't like the U.N. because it's full of foreigners, which frankly can't be helped. So... Uh, <laughs> I think it, it needs to be fixed. Yeah, there's also kind of a, a nationalism from the right about the UN. It's directed directly at the UN, yeah. uh, where it feels the UN is, is usurping the power of the United States and is the, the United States is somehow, you know, ceding their sovereignty to the UN. Well, I mean, well, Trump has been up there twice in his speeches to mm. the General Assembly. That's what he talks about. Right. That it's American sovereignty. The thing is, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure out that there's some issues that cannot be dealt with by yes. one country alone, especially in this day and age. Climate change, nuclear proliferation, the spread of Ebola, uh, a number of different issues that are humanitarian that you need that kind of cooperation. And it's not ceding our sovereignty. Um, it is a way, uh, Americans don't like the word multilateralism. It has too many syllables and it ends in an ism. <laughs> But all it is is Only partnership. Only works good on Wheel of Fortune, you know, that's all. I mean, it's, it's yeah. partnership. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that one actually gains by having partners. It's a force Absolutely. multiplier rather than a way to weaken things. So I, I do think the UN needs reforming. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's very hard for us to push 
for reform if we're the ones that all of a sudden unilaterally decide that we're not going to pay something. Right. Um, so, by the way, it's something that happened um, uh, when we were in office because Congress said that had to happen, and it led the British to deliver a line that they had waited more than 200 years to say, <laughs> which is representation without taxation. Right. <laughs> oh, British humor. Yeah. And our uh, final question for the evening, uh, lady writes, I'm, I admire the pins you wear, uh, and I'm wondering, what pin are you wearing today? What significance does it have? And if you were to meet with President Trump, what pin would you wear to that meeting? Nice. So what pin are you wearing? What's the significance? And if you met so, with Trump, what pin would I you If I can say how this all started, yes. if people didn't know, I clearly like jewelry. So mm-hmm. when I was named nice. to go to the UN, um, I... Uh, it was right after the Gulf War, and the ceasefire had been translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. Mm-hmm. And I was an instructed ambassador. And so um, uh, I said terrible things about Saddam Hussein every day, so, and, which he deserved. He'd invaded Kuwait. Right. So what happened was uh, all of a sudden a poem appeared in the papers in Baghdad. Um, and um, I, I was said, compared me to many things, but one was an unparalleled serpent. So I had a snake pin, and I started mm-hmm. wearing it when, uh, whenever we talked about Iraq. So awesome. then you've seen how the ambassadors <laughs> go out and talk to the press. I love you just press. throwing shade from your lapel. Yeah, that, I love no. that. So um, that's what, anyway, so I decided yeah, that's, that's that awesome. I would, I went, I was living in New York, I went mm-hmm. and bought a lot of costume jewelry, and I decided... On good days, I wear flowers and butterflies and balloons, and on mm. bad days, carnivorous animals and spiders and things. Ah. And the other ambassadors noticed, and they said, what are we going to do today? And I'd say, read my pins. So that's how it started. Nice. So Very nice. there was a time the Russians were, when our secretary were bugging the State Department, uh-huh. and we found the man sitting outside, and we do what diplomats do is complain to Moscow. But the next time I met with... Um, the Russians, I wore this huge bug, and they knew exactly what I was doing. Right. Yeah. So, if we're, so what I'm wearing today yes. is Mercury the Messenger. Nice. Uh, because I think that there are some important Very messages important message. to deliver. Yeah. And what would you wear if you met with um, our Well, uh, I would, depending upon how I felt that day, mm-hmm. I would wear a Statue of Liberty nice. um, because I think that that is a message that needs to be delivered. But I'd be more likely to wear, I have a Donald Duck pin. <laughs> I think it's fitting that Donald Duck doesn't even wear pants. That's how uh, <laughs> out of it he is. You know, um, I do have one final question, Madam Secretary. Would you please run for president in 2020? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't she make a fantastic president? Thank you so much Thank for you. being my guest. Thank you. Secretary of State, Madam